With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. I do remember one time just having this big realization that these are just preferences. You know, the fact that I say, hey, I think this should cut off on beat three, right? That's just me saying what I would like it to be. Someone else could say, you know what, it should cut off on two. It doesn't mean that my choice is right or wrong. It's just like one person is choosing chocolate, the other person is choosing vanilla. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac. The voice we just heard belongs to Alex Lackamore. Who is he? Alex is so many different things. He's a musician, he's a composer, he's a music director and orchestrator and arranger, and he primarily works on Broadway. He's worked on a lot of shows, uh, including Wicked, Bat Boy, Legally Blonde, Bring It On. Uh, He did the arrangements for Dear Evan Hansen, for which he won the Tony Award, but he's really best known for his longstanding collaboration with Lin-Manuel Miranda. He arranged and orchestrated In the Heights with Bill Sherman, and he is the music director, conductor, arranger, and orchestrator of Hamilton. All right. Well, before we hear this week's interview, I want to mention that we have a little something extra for Slate Plus members. What's on deck? Yes, we had so much fun talking to Alex that uh, there was actually too much good material to fit in the episode. So you will get a little bonus hit of talking a little bit more in depth about arranging the songs from Hamilton and one particular song from the show that posed many arrangement challenges, but no spoilers as to which one it is. If you would like to hear that and get all sorts of other goodies, you should join Slate Plus. 
History has its eyes on you, listeners. If you want to be in the room where it happens, now is the time to join. You can even get a free two-week trial right now by going to slate.com slash working plus. And if you're enjoying this show, we really hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to Working. All right, now let's hear Isaac's conversation with Alex Lackamore. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So what exactly is an arranger? What is that job all about? The best way I describe arranging is arranging is the macro view of a song. The example I give often is if you listen to, uh, uh, with a little help from my friends from the Beatles, right? That song in its uh, original state is is very happy, it's bouncy, it's made up of these four instruments and the feel is almost like a music hall feel, right? That is the arrangement of it. It's in the key of E, that's the tempo, it's this BPM. But that also that song could exist in a totally different format the way Joe Cocker did it, where it, it goes into 6-8 time and it's gospel influence and it has much harder rock guitars and it's slower and it has different backup vocals. Oh, baby, have Those are arrangement decisions, you know, uh, uh, looking at how the song feels, looking at what key it's in, looking at the what we call the routine of the song. You know, is it three choruses? Is it two choruses? Do you, you know, uh, do you end the song with a big bang for applause or do you kind of like melt away and kind of, uh, you know, disintegrate a little bit to a quiet whisper? Those kinds of decisions is what arranging truly is. That's the best way I can describe it. And so how does one become an arranger? Or I guess, to be more specific, how did you become an arranger? Is it a thing that you study? Is there an a, apprenticeship? Is there a, a correspondence course through a guild? Like, a, you know, how, to, <laughs> how do you become an arranger? So I uh, was a big fan of this keyboard. Uh, back in my day, in the early 90s, there was a keyboard called the Korg 01FW. And mm-hmm. what this keyboard could do is that you could layer tracks 
on top of themselves. You had a maximum of, of 16 tracks that you could lay down. So I myself at the keyboard will call up a piano sound and play the piano part for scenes from an Italian restaurant by Billy Joel. And then I would go back and start from the beginning and call up a uh, drum sound and play the drums for scenes from an Italian restaurant all the way through. And then go back to the beginning and then call up a guitar sound and play that part. Call up the string sound, et cetera, et cetera, and just overlay layers and layers of myself only for no other reason than I just thought it was fun <laughs> to just try to build a song from the ground up and try to see how it was put together. Try to really tune into, okay, what is the drummer doing on this song that makes it sound that way? What is the guitar part playing that is adding to the song and making it feel so exciting? So in that, without realizing it, I was basically studying how songs are put together and basically learning about arrangements and learning about you know, uh, uh, the ebbs and flows of a song, like learning how to have a song accelerate and have a peak and then find its way back down again. You know, just really kind of the, the, the true nuts and bolts of, of, of what happens. So I think the love of that is what led me to be in situations where songs needed arrangements and I could raise my hand and say, hey, I could do this. I, I know a thing or two about these instruments and be able to develop a song and, and therefore develop the chart for the song and the orchestration for the song. When did you actually start raising your hand and doing that? Was that in high school or college or after you graduated? Or I think I started raising my hand more in high school. Um, you know, leading up to high school, which is when I picked up a guitar for the first time right, uh, and learned what that was. I know that when I would sit down and play rock songs on the piano, I would take it upon myself to figure out not just the piano part, but actually the guitar part. And I would try to play the guitar part on the piano. So like just picture, you know, what, a 12-year-old Alex or a 13-year-old Alex trying to play Cult of Personality on the piano. You know, there's <laughs> that, the piano has no business playing that song, and yet I just needed to know how to do that, you know, or how to play right. the guitar solo from, from Panama <laughs> on the piano. Like I would, uh, you know, want to know how to do that. So I always had an ear for that. But I do know that around high school... There was a cool opportunity where there was a singer-songwriter in my high school who wrote these beautiful songs and wanted to put together like, you know, a compilation or recording of these songs. And I went into total George Martin mode where I would hear a song and say, oh, you know what this song needs? A clarinet and an oboe. And right. hear another song. Oh, you know what would be great on this song is a viola playing the intro before you even sing. <laughs> right. You know? Let me pull my Mellotron out from storage. <laughs> and uh... I would get so deep, dude. I would get a four track and I was so into it, like setting up the mics and, and trying to get perfect takes. So like I was basically building songs and, and you know more or less producing in high school because I just saw an opportunity and I just saw the value of what it adds to have a French horn line in the middle of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club band. You know, I just knew what those elements added to those songs, you know, to see, oh yeah, you know, yesterday could have existed on guitar, but you could have also have had a string quartet playing on it. it I was always just drawn to like other ways to treat songs and other ways to hear them. Yeah, and if you're looking for great arrangements, I mean, uh, you know, his, his, George Martin's work on those Beatles records absolutely is incredible, especially yeah. in the second half, you know, Revolver and on when they're experimenting I mean, with instrumentation and, and what they can do in the studio. benchmark truly right about what an arranger could really do 
to a song and, ha- and contribute to and, and, and give direction and guidance, knowing full well that it, they are not the composer, right? Knowing mm-hmm. full well that it still needs a songwriter to create the song and uh, an arranger or orchestrator to me just helps channel that song mm-hmm. and helps execute it and, and gives that song a, a, a point of view. Uh, not to say that there's no point of view before the arranger gets on board, but it can just help define and solidify and crystallize what that point of view is and, and give the song personality perhaps and, and just give a fresh perspective uh, to, to the song itself. Totally. You know, um, earlier this year, in fact, the first interview I ever did for this show was uh, with Miho Hazama, who's a jazz composer who also does arranging. And she mentioned that when she's arranging, she has to like get into a mind meld Mm. with the composer. And, you know, she does a certain amount of like work on her on a process level to kind of figure out like, what is the composer really thinking about when they do that? Is, Is there certain kind of techniques or a process that you've developed when you're arranging to be like, what is the point of view that this songwriter is coming from so that I can bring that to life, you know, with my own creativity as opposed to it just being my expression or, or whatever. You know, I, I don't often get asked to arrange with someone that I haven't uh, been working with before, or at least, or, or that I might not know their work. And when those opportunities happen, you can just kind of be open and, and give ideas and give suggestions. But the good news is, is that um, there's always another idea, right? And right. that's, I, I learned a big lesson once in, in watching someone work their butt off to try to perfect something. And then uh, the composer was like, yeah, I'm not feeling it. And then, okay. They just said, no problem. What else can we do? And instead of like digging their heels in and being like, oh, my idea needs to see the light of day, right? And being so precious about it, just to be able to say like, okay, great. We'll throw that in the bin and come up with something else. Um, it's knowing that you have to be able to give up that part of your ego that might be holding on to something that you created only because you created it, right? You have to remember that you're serving a different purpose, right? You're, mm. you're serving the piece, you're serving a composer's wishes, and at the end of the day, they have their final say. So right. I think it, it, there's that balance of trying to suggest something, being passionate about it, trying to make a case for it, and also being able to let go of it, being able to uh, recognize that someone else, as the songwriter, will really have that ultimate say and will be able to dictate what uh, whether something stays or goes. You know, I know when I'm working collaboratively, a real challenge is getting too attached to an idea. I mean, oh, you course. really, you know, it, you really have to work to like be willing to. At least I do. Maybe I'm just talking. Maybe I'm just talking about my own <laughs> faults. But you know, you have to work to be able to just like let go of it and just be like, okay, we're moving on to the next thing. Was that a challenge for you to to learn how to do? I think at first, in my younger days, for sure. I do remember one time just having this big realization that, hey, these are just preferences, right? This Mm -hmm. is just what I prefer. And when I hear this song, I I tend to want to play that chord, and someone else might want to hear another one. It doesn't mean that my choice is right or wrong. It's just like one person is choosing chocolate, the other person is choosing vanilla, and it's just what they prefer. So I often think about the fact that as an arranger or as a music director even, you know, the fact that I say, hey, I think this should cut off on beat three, right? That's just me saying what I would like it to be, right? Someone else could say, you know what, it should cut off on two or it should cut off on the end of three or whatever. And they could be perfectly right in their choice. But it's just something that I listen to in myself personally, a gut reaction and a gut feeling that I trust and that I go with. And I have my own logical reasons for why I think that cutoff should be on two. And you know, that's a whole other podcast. But you know, all this to say, once I realized that I wasn't wrong 
for uh, not being able to 100% predict what that composer was going to uh, uh, say, what they liked, didn't mean that like I was a bad musician. <laughs> didn't mean that right, I was bad at my right. job. <laughs> it just meant, okay, I just didn't see it the way they saw it. And my way might have been awesome for somebody else. Somebody else might have totally liked my idea and, and, and have run with it. But um, it, it's just knowing where to kind of give up that part of your ego uh, to, that, that might get attached. Right. And also this draft, this is something that comes up with me in writing all the time, right? This draft that doesn't work might help clarify what actually needs to happen on the draft that will work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It gives a reaction point, right? It gives us a frame of reference. And, you know, I I find for me, definitely, it's easier to give notes sometimes when there's a proof of concept, right? Mm -hmm. When you can, like, if if it could be anything, well, where do you go? Just present me with an idea. And then it could be like, okay, it needs to be more joyful or or, or no, you need to be darker sounding or hey, it needs to be three uh, strings, not five, whatever, you know, but not until you have something to bounce off of and have a a boundary, have have a, 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 just something to, like I said, to, to just cut, react off of. That's important. Totally. You mentioned earlier that, you know, on your Broadway work, you've been lucky to come in very early in the process. So perhaps that's a good opportunity for talking about Hamilton. Sure. Uh, uh, you came in very early in that, right? Like what, what was the show when you first came on board? How much of it existed? Did any of it exist? What, <laughs> what was it when you and Lin-Manuel first started talking about it? Yeah. Uh, Lin-Manuel played me the opening number not long after he had written it. And when he brought the song to me, he had mentioned wanting to make an album along the lines of what Jesus Christ Superstar was, along the lines of what Evita was, where it was a a record, it was an album before it was a stage musical. And he had only written that one song. And it took about another year before he wrote another song after that. Uh, And then once Tom McHale, our director, encouraged Lynn to keep writing and, and to pick up the pace so that, you know, he could write more than one song a year, you know, <laughs> then it really started kind of take a, a flight and start to snowball and, and become the, the, the thing that it eventually uh, became. It would be good to finish the show before you were all in your 70s. <laughs> there you go. Were you really conversant in hip hop and musical theater? Or did you feel like you needed to go out and kind of become conversant in those things to work on the show as an arranger? I had to study it for sure. Uh, I'm not a huge hip hop connoisseur. I mean, I grew up listening to the Beastie Boys. I grew up listening to Black Sheep, but I never got really heavy into like Lynn's heroes, like Jay-Z and Tupac and Big Pun. So, you know, I, I think for me growing up, hip hop was there. It was around and I would hear it, but it was not something that I would actively always listen to and pick apart and, and see how it was put together. I definitely started to do that more as I started working with Lin-Manuel and what kinds of sounds sound hip, what kinds of sounds don't, uh, when you're adding too much, when you're not having enough, how much to depend on the drums. I definitely did a lot of uh, uh, research in that respect in terms of trying Mm. to figure out how to make Hamilton sound as authentic as possible while still honoring the Broadway tradition. And so how did you figure out the instrumentation? Like what kinds of musicians are going to be in the the pit with you? Because you can imagine... A bunch of different ways it could have gone. You could have had a turntablist. <laughs> yeah, and, and we thought about know, that for a while. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes total sense that you would, given the material. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, how did you figure out the instrumentation? I think the first clue I had was with Lynn's demos, I could start to notice that he was using stringed instruments in his demos. And he one day said to me, I want the strings to be to Hamilton what the horns were to In the Heights. And once I got that description, I'm like, all right, I got you. Well, the word got around. They said, this kid is insane, man. Took a book 
collection just to send him to the mainland. Get your education, don't forget from whence you came. And the world's gonna know your name. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. The next thing for me was knowing that I just wanted the foundation of a pop rock band. And I just got mad inspired by looking at groups like The Roots. And looking at, at Jay-Z's backing band, looking at Beyonce's backing band, and uh, Prince's backing band, and looking at how they were able to make uh, music that sounds so studio perfect, but create it live. That was something that I was just so impressed with because there is something about the uh, live aspect of playing Hamilton that I always tell people. It's very loop-based, right? It's very pattern-based, and therefore, in that hip-hop vernacular, sounds almost computerized to that extent, right? Because it's taking a pattern and, and, and repeating it. So I'm always looking to try to find what is the way to make music that is inherently computerized sound just as powerful and strong and impactful when it's being played by live musicians. So anyway, seeing those bands that I, I named made me realize, okay, I think the sound for Hamilton is a pop rhythm section and a string quartet. On top of those instruments, there are also samples, mm -hmm. programmed beats, mm -hmm. um, you know, things like that. How did you develop those? Like, do you have a go-to beat guy on <laughs> speed dial or whatever who builds that? Or are you making those yourself? Or, or how did this, the pre-recorded stuff develop within it? A couple of things. Number one, Lynn's demos would be really fully realized for songs where he was really clear about what he wanted it to be. There were times that he would find a loop that he really loved and it, and it would go into the demo. He would find a bass sound that he loved and it, and it would go into the demo. So there were a lot of times that I would open up Lynn's uh, Logic sessions and Logic is the, the software that he uses to write. And I would open it up and sometimes make adjustments to the sounds themselves and change the decay time on the keyboard and change the amount of delay and the stereo panning for the sound. So I would go in there and, and roll up my sleeves and, and sometimes tweak the sounds. And then um, when it came time to planning out what the percussionist of the show was going to do. And mind you, the percussion for the uh, the show is a lot of drum pad playing. It's a lot of like playing hand claps and snaps and synth bass drums and all that stuff. Theodosia writes me a letter every day. I did put in a call to a esteemed colleague named Will Wells, who is a fantastic musician and producer and a keyboard player and multi-instrumentalist and a songwriter, all of the above. And he was way well more versed in hip hop than I was. And I could just say to him, hey, dude, can you make these songs just sound banging? Can you just make these sounds sound like what they need to be? Like, what is the way to give this kick drum the thump that it needs? What's the right kind of compression to put on these snaps that will make it sparkle just so? And he was able to really tweak those sounds and give them back to me. And then they would go into the hopper and go into the keyboard programming stuff. So uh, that would happen along the way. And the last piece of the puzzle is in doing Hamilton and also really in doing Bring It On, which is the Broadway show I did before Hamilton, I started to learn what are the elements that need to be pre-recorded and what are the elements that we really can play live. And there were a few times in Hamilton where I thought to myself, oh, that piano figure with all the digital delay, I'm going to play that live. And as soon as I tried to play it live, it would just never line up with a click. And hard as I tried to play something robotic 
I, I could never really nail it and have it line up. And I would bust my butt and I would realize, you know what? There's just something about the texture of this sound and something about the way it's manipulated digitally and perfect every single time that a human being cannot do. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that need to be on the track. Those are the things that need to be pre-recorded. The sounds that we as humans just cannot make with consistency. So that just took some decision-making and some trial and error, definitely. And, um, you know, put that all together and you come up with, uh, with the orchestrations for Hamilton. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Alex Lacamoire in just a moment. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems, whether it's a specific challenge about your work or a big question about inspiration and discipline, send them to us at working at slate.com. Even when we can, we'll put those questions to our guest, which happened this week when Isaac got some advice for a listener from Alex Lacamoire. Stick around to hear that after the interview. And you know what would be really great? Call us and leave your question as a voicemail that we can play on the show. Our number is 304-933-9675. Or to put it a different way, 304-933-WORK. Okay, let's rejoin Isaac's conversation with Alex Lacamoire. You mentioned the demos a couple of times. I've heard a couple of them. And it sounds like there was sort of a spectrum of doneness that they came to you in, you know, like, uh, sure. I, I know I, I, you know, I saw the wonderful episode of song exploder that y'all did oh, cool. together where you're talking about wait for it, which is a fairly well-developed demo, yes. although it's missing all sorts of stuff, Absolutely. but it sounds like there's another end of the spectrum, which is like a little less developed. Is that just him singing over chords or, or, yeah. you know, what, what were the demos like? Yeah, it, it depends. They are varied. And as you mentioned, they could be as complete as wait for it was, or they could be as um, unpolished, if you will, as You'll Be Back, which to me, Lynn gave me a lyric sheet. And I think there were chords written on the lyric sheet, but there also might not have been. I don't remember. And Lynn just kind of like sat down at the piano once and explained to me the, the, the vibe. And I could tell, oh, it's Britpop. It's Beatles. I got you. And then I just sat down at the piano and improvised uh, the song for a recording that he was making for Stephen Sondheim because <laughs> he wanted Sondheim to weigh in on the demo. And that was just me and Lynn in a room just making shit up. Uh, so yeah, that allows me to have a lot of freedom. That allows me to really um, you know, give input to what the baseline could be, right? Give mm-hmm. input to how many Beatles references I want to throw in, you know? Uh, give, how uh, many I, did you wind up throwing in on that? Oh, I, I've it... never counted, but I mean, you know, you've got the guitar from Getting Better, you've got the the vibes from Penny Lane, uh, meaning the vibraphone from Penny Lane. Uh, it, 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 it runs the gamut. But um, if you're a Beatles fan, I think you'll sense the love in that arrangement. You'll be back soon, you'll see you remember you belong to me you'll be back time will tell you remember that i served you 
Yeah, I mean, there's tons of references to other songwriters within the show. There's lyrics that reference other lyrics. There's uh, there's a part where he quotes the last five years, you know, for one vocal line. There's uh, and of course ten dual commandments, which references ten crack commandments and stuff like that. Sure. You know, when you're arranging the songs, are, are you sort of trying to hit each of those references? Do you feel like that's a starting point for you to inspire you for what you're doing within building the arrangement around the demo? It can be, but sometimes it's a, a hat on a hat, right? Sometimes it goes yeah. too far and, and it just draws attention to itself. So yeah, I know that there was a time when for 10 Dual Commandments, I did try to replicate some of the sounds of that actual 10 Crack Commandments track. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one. It's the 10 Crack Commandments, one. And then said, no, no, I want it to be a, a little further apart in that respect. I'm like, okay, right, cool, no problem. One, two, So I think it depends on the taste of the composer and sometimes the uh, whether or not you're you're jumping the shark and, and making something a little too too on the nose, if you will. So. You know, it also strikes me that one of the things in a musical, as opposed to just an album or whatever, is the songs are advancing theme, they're advancing character. They're connecting to a larger narrative. They're pieces of a larger whole. You know, Burr has to get to a certain point before he can sing Wait For It mm-hmm. in his journey. Are you thinking about that as you're arranging like this? I mean, obviously, once you have specific actors, I'm sure it helps shape it as well. But, you know, what instrument, what harmonies go with this character? What what baseline is an Aaron Burr baseline or, or you know, whatever? So the good news is, is that I work with composers that are very attuned to the very thing you're describing and are able to compose and come at it from the perspective of the character singing or speaking or communicating. And they're making those kinds of decisions ahead of time for me, which is very, very helpful. So a lot of times I just have to play into the moment. I just have to like just listen to what is happening in the story, the, the situation that they find themselves in and try to telegraph that in the music. Um, I'll give you a great example. We were doing Dear Evan Hansen and uh, there's a beautiful song in that called Requiem. And we were doing workshops and the introduction to that song used to be kind of like a guitar, finger picking, uh, arpeggios. It was a very beautiful kind of a rolling figure. And then at some point, Maybe the script changed or at some point, you know, I just really paid attention to what the script was telegraphing. And in the lines of dialogue leading up to that song, you could sense how um, pissed off this character was before she sang, how irate she was, how frustrated she was that everybody was was, was, uh, making her villainous brother out to be some saint. And all of a sudden I realized, wait, this really pretty rolling guitar figure is not going to cut it. That's not how the character is feeling right now. It's actually the opposite. So and it, it, so then we wound up changing the introduction and I decided, hey, guys, what if we had the guitar strumming right away? Right from the get-go, we need to have a different kind of motion. We need to have a little bit more drive coming from the instruments. Why should I play this game of pretend? Remembering through a second-hand sorrow and then that just changed the way the song began and therefore changed the whole trajectory of the song in a way. Um, so that to me was a moment in which the content and the expression or, or rather the, um, the feeling of the story directly dictated what the music uh, arrangement and orchestration was. 
You know, one of the things that I love about Hamilton are the motifs, the musical motifs that recur throughout the show. And sometimes it'll be a melody recurs, but it's just the rhythm of the melody, right? Or, mm-hmm. or you know, um, little snippets of it so that it really feels like everything's kind of connected and referencing each other. Mm-hmm. How did you and Lin-Manuel and I guess the whole team, I mean, how did you develop where those motifs would go and where you'd sneak them in? Or, you know, that, that um, there's a part, you know, the snare drum plays the rhythm of my shot. Right, right. I think in the middle of the Battle of Yorktown. The world turned upside down. The world turned upside down. Yeah, well, it's great that Lin Manuel thinks like an arranger in those instances, and Lin Manuel, I think one of his like his really superhuman strengths is being able to repurpose themes. Uh, both lyric themes and musical themes and motifs and be able to call them back and bring them back in a way that's very unexpected and very beautiful and in a way that makes the greater score feel like a score, mm-hmm. right? You know, it, it's very easy for for people to like just, you know, write song, 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 here's a musical. Maybe there's a reprise here and there, that's fine. But Lynn has this ability to come up with a chord pattern. You know, let's say it's a, I'm going to make this up, a four bar chord structure and then take that four bar chord structure and then play it again in a song six songs later and you don't even realize that the chord structure is being used and it's a whole brand new song and it's a whole other brand new take uh you know my favorite example is in, in the heights you know when mm-hmm. the matriarch figure when the grandmother dies her song is the chord progression from the song that she sang in act one called Paciente fit and it's just based on that pattern Right. Totally. And, or like in Hamilton, you know, when Eliza is singing the, the chorus, you know, uh, I uh, watching it burn. Under that word, you're hearing the chord progression of a song called That Would Be Enough, which was her love song to him back in Act One. Look at where you are. Look at where you started The fact that you're alive is a miracle Just stay alive, that would be enough And blink if you miss it, right? But to Lynn, it was like a no-brainer. I'm like, oh no, I'm going to reuse that theme and recycle it. And it has more meaning and more impact when you take something and turn it on its ear and look at it from the other angle. I I love that. And he's a, a total genius when it comes to that. Yeah, and it's so pleasurable in a musical when you catch those moments. Of course. It gives you such a like like a little dopamine rush whenever you hear it happen. Yeah, exactly. It's thematic and it's it's familiar, right? And you come back to it and it ties it all together. Yeah, it, that's it's the best. It's great. Yeah, you're also the music director of the show, uh, so you've had to teach it now to many different actors playing each of those roles. How do you approach that? Because that is also a creative thing, being able to teach the mood of the song in such a way to another person who might have a different vocabulary for learning it or whatever. Like, right, how, how, right. Do you, how do you approach that as you've had to teach this over and over and over again and, and work with different musicians and singers? Well, the good news is, is that I, I've got amazing delegates who uh, we now have a lot of companies and sometimes we have a lot of new people coming in at once. So I, I have uh, people who are able to help with the duties of teaching uh, the songs to the actors. Uh, but to answer your question directly, one of the things that is very important to us as we bring in cast members is that we're never looking for people to replicate another actor's performance. 
we try not to say, oh, so-and-so is replacing so-and-so. We actually say so-and-so is taking over the role because we try to just make it clear that what one person's interpretation of the role, you know, their insight to it and their approach to it, they will bring in things to the table that we had never thought of. They will bring in perspectives to insight into that character that we might not have seen, but are totally amazing and valid and make sense. Um, you know, it's our job to provide a framework. And this is how we, as a creative team, envision this character. These, this is the arc that we see when we step back and, you know, and, and take a look. But the actor is the one that's on stage performing it every night. The actor is the one that's going to have to find some truth in their story and in their performance in order for their performance to be captivating. So you have to listen to what they say and find out how that intersects with how you see the character and the story. So um, to that end, I also firmly believe that no two voices are the same. And there might be a certain passage and a certain riff that might be really easy for one person to sing and might not be as easy for another. And that goes for, uh, um, you know, key signatures sometimes, you know, hey, this song actually fits better for you when you sing it a half step lower. You know, it's not an admission of, uh, of oh, I, I, I'm failing because I can't sing the original key. No, no. It's just someone got to that role first. And that was what their voice sounded like. Had it been you, we would have ended up in this key anyway. You know what I mean? It's just, totally. you know, so it, that, that's what it's about. So I, I am very keen on catering the songs to make the actors sound good. Whatever that means. If that means redevising a riff or an ornament that makes it sound good on them and that still honors the song in the right way. If that means changing the key and looking at their interpretation, whatever. You have to leave that room because at the end of the day, that's what theater is, right? There are roles that are meant to be inhabited by people by live people who need to perform that and need to have a reason for performing it, who need to have a way in in order to make their performance believable and compelling and captivating and all of that. So, you know, where are we without those actors? So we have to leave that room for them to, to bring themselves into the picture. Well, Alex Lackamore, thank you so much for joining us and talking about your process on working. Thank you so much for having me, Isaac. It was fun to talk shop with you. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Isaac, that was truly amazing. And I also want to give a shout out to our fantastic producer, Cameron Drews, who added some great musical texture to the interview. There was a lot of really great stuff in there that I want to dig deeper on. But first, I just want to take a moment to ask you about Hamilton. It's really rare these days that a piece of theatre breaks through into the popular imagination. And I'm curious, as a person who's been a theatre professional, a critic and the co-author of the definitive book on another hugely significant theatrical work, Angels in America. How do you assess Hamilton's place in theatre history? 
Well, first off, I think it's fairly clearly the major post-Angels in America work of American theater, right? Just in terms of its impact, Mm -hmm. the way it's permeated the popular culture, the way it's shaped national conversations about all sorts of things, you know, it's really the big one after Angels. As a critic, you know, I, of course, have my issues with the material. I've actually written about some of those for Slate and some with the production itself. But one reason I've spent so much time thinking about the show and wrestling with it and having those issues in the first place is actually a deep love for it. And it's the kind of love that makes you want to look at the work and engage with it in a thoughtful way that moves beyond, you know, surface level enthusiasm. But one thing I am unabashedly enthusiastic about is how Hamilton is clearly the most successful absorption of a popular musical idiom, in this case, hip hop, into the musical theater vocabulary in a very long time. I mean, I think you probably have to go back to like Hedwig and the Angry Inch in the late 90s to get something that does what Hamilton is doing with popular music. That marriage of forms is absolutely key to its genius. And Alex's arrangements are absolutely key to that marriage, which is one of the reasons why I was so eager to talk to him in the first place. Yeah, he talked about it in such an interesting way, too. It's really fascinating to hear how songs and arrangements come together. That's That just is. And I loved hearing that a good chunk of Alex's apprenticeship, uh, as you might say, came when he pulled apart Billy Joel's songs to work out how they were constructed. That's something I've heard from all kinds of talented people in different fields, people breaking down magazine stories or movies or songs to figure out how they were made. Not necessarily so they can copy them, but just because they just feel a need to just see the nuts and bolts of a thing. Is that a technique that you've used in your creative work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I will say, you know, two of my best friends are composers and Mm -hmm. composers have a particular way that they do this that is just sort of magical when they start talking about music that they have been trained very quickly to listen to a piece of music and be like, ah, yes, this is here and this is doing this and this is doing that and combined it creates this effect that I really wish I could bring to, you know, theater directing and writing and everything else. But when I was in graduate school, I did this kind of crazy thing. I had read this Yule abyss essay where she talks about taking a Joan Didion essay and then transcribing it by hand to get a feel for the rhythm of Didion's sentences. And that this was actually something that Didion herself had done with Ernest Hemingway, who was a huge, huge influence on her. So I decided I was going to take this a step further. I found a bunch of prose writers whose style I admired, and I would take a paragraph from essays of theirs that I loved, because I really think the paragraph is actually the fundamental unit of writing, not the sentence. And then I would transcribe that paragraph by hand. And then I would take that transcription and I would not exactly diagram the sentences so much as turn it into a kind of mad libs on steroids. So instead of reading like sentences, it would read like noun phrase, verb, adverb, noun, period, or whatever. And then I would pick a random subject matter and I would write a new paragraph that conformed to those sentence structures so that it would read as similar anyway to the source material. That was really painstaking work. It took days to do these, you know, but Mm -hmm. it dramatically improved my writing and gave me a lot of new tools that I feel like I still use today. And actually, my hope is maybe when I'm done with this book, I'll spend a week or two doing that again just to get better, you know? Cool. We have a listener question this week that you and I will offer our thoughts on. But first, you put it to Tony winner, Alex Lackamore, who had some great advice. 
We have a uh, listener who has written us asking for some advice, and I thought if you were game, I could just talk to you about what their problem was, and, and maybe sure. you could help give them some advice. So she is someone who's had a couple years to just focus on on her own projects, and now the time has come where she has gone and needed a day job and gone and gotten the day job, and it's going to require a lot of work and attention and creative energy, right? And she's asking about how, when you have a really busy, full life, <laughs> do you maintain that creative energy, you know, for your own work that you're doing at home? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, um, I think number one, it's kind of being clear about what you need in your space in order to be creative. And what I mean by that, if that means that what works for you is to have two hours from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. or whether that means, you know, I need to be in a quiet room where no one's bothering me and in, in order to focus, whatever that is. Um, just asking for that and finding out how you can create that space. And that's, you know, easier said than done, right? Because I know that life throws us curveballs and, and sometimes, it, you know, it, it, that's not an easy thing to just all of a sudden snap your fingers and have that be true. But I do believe that there is, where there's a will, there's a way. And I do believe that by and large, people tend to be supportive if you say, hey, I need this because this is what's going to make me feel fulfilled. This is what I need in my life in order to X, Y, Z. I find by and large people will be accommodating for that to happen. And then I find for me, feedback is always really important and also having a, a goal to work towards is really important. So I'm fortunate in that my work is born out of people asking me to come on board for something. People saying, hey, I have this thing and it's due on such and such a date and I need X by Y, right? So I have a goal, I have a task to accomplish and along the way I get feedback and there it is. I can imagine it must be much harder when it's open-ended and it's like, hey, I just want to release an album and I don't know when it's going to come out, right? Or I just want to, my dream is to go to this studio and do this thing and, and write that song but, and that's a much harder thing to pinpoint. But I wonder if, and this is just me spitballing, like, you know, can those goals be predetermined? Can one say... And by the way, my, my wife is a life coach and I'm sure she would love that I'm saying all these things. But like, could one <laughs> say, okay, no, I'm going to have an album released next year. And, but like get more detailed than that. No, no, no. I'm going to have an album released like on September 1st, 2021. And it's going to have five songs on it and da, 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 and then work backwards from that. And then what do you need to do in order to make that happen? And then find those goals. And then along the way, you can like, you know, be, hold yourself accountable, let other people know, hey, this is what I'm after. And then they can support you in what that is. So, you know, all this to say, I think I, I'm lucky in that those goals have been laid out for me. So I have something to meet because there's definitely an or else factor to that. Right. But if you don't have an or else, it's much harder to try to, to make that happen, right? So yeah. what is the or else that you can set up for yourself that's, you know, comfortable enough to have you do what you need to do, but also scary enough to make you bust your butt to, to do what you need to do? Isaac, do you agree with Alex? Is there anything you'd like to add? Well, I think Alex had a lot of wonderful advice and I just sprang the question on him. So <laughs> it's great that he was able to just riff off the cuff like that. What I would say is that the most creative part of creative work is creating the circumstances that allow you to create. I think that's always true, whether you have unlimited free time or very little free time. You would be surprised how much of what we call the creative process is actually just forming a life that allows the creativity to happen. In the letter writer's particular situation, there are real specific challenges. A full-time job is a real specific challenge. And it these will sometimes, yeah. these days especially, yeah. And it will sometimes be harder 
to get her personal artistic work done. But I have a few really concrete suggestions. One is to simply create a schedule to just have actual time blocked off in the calendar, which is like, this is when I'm doing my art. And then it might be helpful since we're all working from home during this pandemic to do it in a different part of your apartment or house or create some kind of ritual, even if it's just you close your eyes and breathe for 30 seconds or something that is the equivalent of, you know, you're taking off your shoes when you enter the dojo or whatever, you know, so that you can do your work. Just something that is saying, this is a different time. I'm using different muscles here. I would also greatly encourage you to be easy on yourself. Doing all of this, adjusting to a new routine, it is going to take time. It's going to take effort and it's going to be hard at first. Um, It is not that you are uniquely untalented or anything like that. It is that what you are trying to do is challenging. The last thing I would say is that it might be time to switch to some different parts of your creative practice right now. The letter writer has just been through a massive generative period. I think they finished like the first draft of a novel, for example. So this might be a great time to pivot to revising, to use a different part of your creativity and keep yourself fresh. Take lots of breaks, drink lots of water, and good luck. Yeah, between you and Alex, I think you have given some really great insights, um, tips, I will just amplify something that you said, Isaac, about being easy on yourself. Get enough sleep, eat well, take walks. Don't just sit at a desk for 20 hours a day, survive on three hours sleep. Like, Don't do that to yourself. That will not produce work. That will make you crazy. You cannot get anything like as much work done as you did when you were focusing on it full time. That's just not going to happen. It's impossible. So do what you can do. But get rest, you know, recharge your batteries, breathe some air. Don't forget that part of it. I think it's so easy to kind of push through and think that that's, you know, that's that's the way to do things. There will be times, <laughs> like right now for Isaac, when you're just doing too much, but you can only do that for a very short period of time. And don't get into feeling that that's the appropriate approach. It's not. So be kind. You asked us to keep you anonymous, listener, but please feel free to write us back and let us know how it's going. Listeners, if you have questions you would like us to answer, you'd like us to put to our guests, please write to us at workingatslate.com. And if you want to hear your voice on the air, you know, it'd be really great. Call us, leave a question as a voicemail that we can play on the show. The number is 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-96. Seven, five. And we hope you at home or on your walk or whatever you're doing right now have enjoyed this show. If you have, please consider subscribing to the podcast. You may also want to sign up for Slate Plus. May? No, you should. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial right now at slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Alex Lackamore and our brilliant producer, Cameron Drews. Check out our show next week when I will be interviewing the brilliant Joe Sacco. He has a particular, maybe almost a unique job. He's a journalist, but he publishes his journalism as comic books. Until then, get back to work. <laughs>